are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. All right, Galatians 2, and all this I still have not got, gotten set up. All right. All right, Galatians 2, here we are. Last week we talked a little bit about the gospel and how the gospel is the freedom away from hypocrisy and the law. The gospel is freedom, and then in particular with our text last week, it is freedom from hypocrisy and the law. Last week, we took a look at a situation, a real time and space historical uh, situation in our scriptures where one apostle came to another apostle and challenged him to his face. Particularly, it was Paul who challenged Peter to his face. Uh, It seems uh, maybe um, understated to say that it was, that's a pretty crazy event to have an apostle, challenge another apostle, somebody with authority, challenging another person's authority about the authority on which their authority rests, the nature of the gospel. Uh, And so we looked at that last week. If you remember the story, Peter had hypocritically, Monday through Saturday, decided that he could eat with the Gentiles and partake of their food choices and sit at their Uh, particular side of the cafeteria, and then Sunday came along, and the Judaizers came along, and circumcision came along, and they said, hey, no, this is how we roll. You have to do this in order to be saved. Yes, you need Jesus, but you also need circumcision. Oh, and you also have to eat with the right people. Oh, and you have to also abide by all these dietary restrictions that we abide to. And the circumcision party then began to have influence on Peter, and Peter was led astray. Okay, remember the Uh, Chapter 1, there are those who want to distort the gospel and to trouble you. These were these people from James, and they were certainly doing that. And we learned last week that even Barnabas, Paul's friend, was led astray. It had great impact on the life of the church there, a very confusing impact on the life of the church. But last week, we looked how Paul began to unpack his argument towards Peter, saying that the gospel provides freedom from this kind of hypocritical lifestyle, that what you do Monday through Saturday doesn't have to change from what you do on Sunday. God has freed us from a kind of hypocritical lifestyle where we are measured up spiritually based on what we do, that we are measured up spiritually based on what side of the tracks we're on or what side, what part of the cafeteria we eat on or what kinds of foods we partake in. We have freedom in the gospel. We are all level at the foot of the cross. Paul says, I was able to give up, as a a Jew, I was able to give up this kind of Jewish expression of spirituality in order to minister to the Gentiles. This is what God has freed us to do. And we recognize that we as Jews had no advantage when it comes to rightness with God because 
God has taken that advantage away through the law. The law gave us clarity that none of us were pulling it off, Jew or Gentile. And so all of us are justified the exact same way, through faith in Christ. And if all of us are justified the exact same way, then we all get to eat at the same table. This was what Paul was providing us clarity on. Peter, he was challenging him to his face. Peter, you need to be free because you are free in Jesus to eat with both. Jesus justifies both. Peter, you need to eat with both. Doesn't matter if they're circumcised. Doesn't matter if they're eating with washed hands. Doesn't matter if they're eating the right foods. We have freedom in Christ to associate with all kinds of people at the foot of the cross. This is exactly what we were looking at last week, this idea of lawfulness. We discussed at brief this distinction between God's law and his gospel. Remember this idea that Paul was uh, saying that the circumcision party had come in and really asked more of Peter and the Gentiles than what was originally planned. And this is exactly what the law comes and does to us. The law always asks for more. The law might say, do this, but then there's always additions and maybe some subtractions, and there's always kind of a consistency that's needed in order to keep the law. The law will always ask for more. And the whole purpose of what God did to give us the law is not to make you feel like you're succeeding, but the law was there to make you cry, uncle, the law makes you quit. The law makes you quit the game. The law law makes you pick up your ball and go home. The law does not help us or advance us in spirituality. Rather, it hinders us. But we get suckered in, don't we? We get suckered into life by law, don't we? We do, we do this all the time. Someone, someone gives us something to do, and all of a sudden we get intrigued. Yes, Jesus, but you also need to come and do this, whatever it is, fill in the blank. It could be you need to come to church. You need to have a sort of consistent record. You need to have your daily devotional life. And if we don't do those things, then we start to feel guilty. We need to serve in the life of the church. Even though I just put in a plug in for serving in the life of the church. Oh, how easy we hijack that for righteousness, right? We hijack that for a kind of, hey, this will endear me to God. This will get me closer to God. God might like me more. Or I can pay off some of my misdeeds by doing greater deeds. And though none of us are saying those things explicitly, we implicitly believe these things by how we spiritually pat ourselves on the back or buy into our own press, or conversely, feel guilty when we don't do those things. It's easy to get suckered in to life by law. I get suckered into the idea of holidays, right? Anybody feel like they get suckered in? I love holidays. Everyone's supposed to love holidays. Christmas is coming, guys, right? And this means you're going to get suckered into this feeling of like, guys, this is going to be the greatest Christmas ever. And I'm like all for it. And I like spend all December getting prepped for like the greatest holiday time ever. And then inevitably we travel or family travels to us. And then it's like, this is the worst. (laughs) And I do this every holiday. Every holiday I get kind of suckered in. And then I realize I get like some clarity. I'm like, okay, basically I need to taper my expectations because like just life in a large family with lots of people all in one house around particular events with hot objects and 
weird expectations and gifts, those things just, it's just never going to work. There's, there's good stuff. It's just never going to be my ideal. I kind of get suckered in a little bit because like as a child, it was so great. And I didn't have all the drama of all, all the things. But now as an adult, there's adult problems, there's adult things, and all of a sudden it's like holidays are kind of testy. There's like, you know, some good years and bad years. Anyone else? Is this just me? Am I just burying my soul? All right. Some of you are giving me like blank stares like, what? Like, all right, maybe I just have these issues. I'm a very optimistic person at heart, so I have very optimistic hopes for holidays. I have very optimistic uh, thoughts about my own performance. I have very optimistic hearts about my own spiritual performance and my own Christianity. And I think this is going to be great if God just gives me a bunch of rules to follow and if I can just manage my way through what I have to do today in order to make God happy with me or make me feel good about myself, then I can, I can be okay. And I get suckered in. And people give me a list of things I have to do. Just dress this way. Don't hang out with these kinds of people. Just make sure you stay away from these TV shows and you're going to be fine. Last week we talked about this idea that actually to be right, you have to be wrong. To be right, to be set right with God, you have to allow the law of God to do its work. And that stinks because it ruins our expectations of our own spiritual performance. You have to allow the law of God to do its work of diagnosing, or maybe even clearer. You have to do, allow the, the law of God to do its work of condemnation in your heart. You have to allow the law of God to tell you where you're not pulling it off. How you're not succeeding at the Christian life. Why? That sets the stage for the hearing of the gospel in its clarity, for the receiving of God's pure 100% kind of grace. It sets the stage. And this is why Paul was so passionate about, how Paul, uh, about, about Peter's actions not being in step with the truths of the gospel. He wasn't free. He wasn't living in the freedom of the gospel. He was being bound by the pressures of the law. Look good, be good, feel good, and make sure everybody else knows it. He wasn't free in his heart to go serve and love other people. He was bound up in a lawfulness that was really damaging to his soul. The Judaizers were swerving off of the gospel and were therefore trying to smuggle works back into their justification. By swerving from the truth of the gospel... They were actually trying to smuggle then back into the justification our own righteousness, our own performance. They were swerving away from a message of done and smuggling back into church this reality of do or this, uh, this feeling of do. Guys, I, I want you to know that there is a deep seriousness to swerving from the gospel. As a pastor, can I tell you that this is my this is what keeps me up at night? Okay? There are, there are probably lots of things that I'm supposed to have in my heart that keep me up at night. Probably like the TV shows you guys are watching or, I, I don't know, how much time you spend scrolling on your phone before bed. Okay? Those are the things that I'm probably supposed to be upset about. But that's not really, really what, as a pastor... Knowing my own heart, what I what I get like tense about, I get tense about us swerving from the gospel. Why? 
Because if we swerve from the gospel, what we necessarily have to do in order to pursue a sense of justification is we have to smuggle in works. We have to. And that's our, that's our instinct. That's what we do. We smuggle back into a sense of justification all these doings, burdens that Jesus himself does not place on our soul. Jesus, uh, burdens that God himself doesn't want Christians who have been set free in Jesus burdened down by. And so we swerve. And so away from a heart that moves off of good news is a heart that's running into, maybe even blindly, maybe ignorantly, into bad news, thinking it's good news. And this is what's so damaging. This is what kills the life of a church or kills a culture of a church where we're supposed to have a spirit of forgiveness and welcoming and belonging and working with people. We end up putting up walls of judgmentalism because why? Because I, I do it and you don't. I'm right and you're wrong. So it puts up walls and barriers and we tend to not forgive people. Why? Because we are the ones who actually need justification. So we keep all the cards close. And we're hesitant to minister grace because we're the ones trying to keep acceptance. This, I, I really believe this to be true. As people who have grown up in the life of the church, which is most of our church, this is our sin. This is our struggle. I, I really believe that. What doesn't keep me up at night is who you're voting for, like Republican or Democrat. Like I just... I'm sure that's a sin. I'm sure you guys are sinning in that some way. I, I, you probably are. I don't, I don't know. I probably am too, by the way. I feel like you, no matter who you vote for, we're probably all sinning. Who, who cares? But that's, you understand what I'm saying. I, I don't, that's not what keeps me up at night. I think what keeps me up at night for us collectively as a bunch of people who have grown up in the life of the church is that we swerve away from the gospel and in our church becomes a culture of really good peopleism and performancism, and all the baggage and nastiness that comes from that. that That's what keeps me up, because it's insidious. It's so hard to see. It's so hard to convince good people that they're not good and that they need 100% grace. That's what keeps me up at night. I think that's what should keep you up at night. Can I, can I say that to you? I think that's what should keep you up at night. This sin that I think is massive, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying like this, like, uh, no, it is ma- no, it is massive, and it's chronic. It's chronic in my heart. It's chronic in your heart. This performanceism that is smuggled back into the life of the church. I know this is true because he, here's how this ends up showing up in, in religious people's lives, in your life, as I see it. We are governed by an overly busy schedule. And here, here's how this looks. We feel like we have to do. We feel like we need to be doing. And so we schedule the heck out of our lives. And so we just pile up lives, events. Just go, 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 go. Here's how I'm serving. Here's what I'm doing. And that date comes along. You booked this thing three weeks out. Okay, you put it on your calendar. You put it in there. This is going to be good. This is going to be right. This is what God wants us to do. You put it on your calendar. Not knowing anything that's going to happen in the next three weeks. That day comes along, let's pretend it's a Thursday, and here's the event, here's the thing that God wants you to do. And you have it on your calendar. 
and life by that point has just totally hit the fan. Kids are sick. Your wife doesn't even like you. You double booked. And you've got this thing stuck on your calendar. We have to do this. We have to. We said. And now there's all this anxiety and fear. What if we don't keep our schedule? What if we have to cancel? What if we have to back out? How does it make me feel? Am I letting God down? What are those people going to think? That we just sat at home with sick kids? Here's, here's how it looks. I'm the only one who does anything in this ministry. I'm the only one who does this ministry. And so we continue to just go after it. We feel like we have to show up or else no one else is going to pick it up. We kind of pat ourselves on the back after it's done. Say, like, look at all you bad people. Look at all, no one, you don't show up, you don't show up, you don't show up, I show up. This happens because of me. What if it didn't happen because of you? What if we just decided, like, because of the realities of the gospel, you seem a little burnt out? I think we should, like, take that from you, allow you to rest in Jesus, realize you're perfectly and wonderfully disposable, we love you, but someone else can do this, it's okay, or we don't have to have it because it's not worth burning out people. Ministry is not dictated by program, it's dictated by people. So maybe we can just like send you home, and it's okay. And by the way, you still have all of your righteousness. Jesus loves you, he is so happy with you, he looks at you like he looks at his son. You are his beloved child of God, whom he's very well pleased. But we, we have, oh, we have a hard time with that. Oh, don't take my ministry from me. We have a hard time with that, don't we? This is how insidious it can be. Some of you are addicted to reading your Bible. Listen, I, I love reading my Bible. I, I love you reading your Bible. But have you ever missed a day? Have you ever missed a day? How does it make you feel? That's when like all that self-righteousness, like a mountain, just like just it's like a kerplunk, right? You played the game kerplunk. That's like you take the one thing out, all the marbles fall. You have all this righteousness stacked up, kerplunk. You missed one day, and it's like now you have nothing. You might as well. I mean, Jesus is so disappointed. Do you even love the Bible? I mean, do you even care? You missed a day. You scrolled through your phone. How dare you? Anyone else? Okay. Yeah, this is how it happens. Because we really don't believe in the heart of hearts that we are truly free. That the acceptance that we long for in Jesus we already have. That the justification that we build most of our lives and schedules and ministries on, we already have as a gift and no relation to our performance, what we've done or not done. We really do think it's all about us. This is powerful. The law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on his way to righteousness, but rather hinders him. Although the works of man always seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. 
Although these works that we do, the ministries we have, the schedules we keep, the Bible reading that we subscribe to, although these things look really good and attractive, if done in self-righteousness, if swerving away from the gospel, they are likely to be mortal sins. Guys, it's serious. It's big news. You get 99% of the gospel right, 1% you, how are you doing? The law of God, the thing that shows us what righteousness looks like, that puts God's expectations on our heart, cannot advance man on his way to righteousness. But rather, if you're listening really close, if you're listening to what God really expects out of you, the holy standard that he has set for you, really it shows up that you're not advancing in godliness. You're actually being hindered by it. Listen. This is what Paul is going on to talk about. He's continuing his argument to Peter here in Galatians 2. We're going to look at verses 17 through 21. I'm going to go ahead and read this passage here, and we'll talk about it. Peter, but if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we, were too, we, we, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Tonight, we're going to look at a couple things. We're going to look at, I'm going to describe it, and then I'm going to kind of give you like a little chart, a little map, and hopefully it'll, it'll, be, it'll be clear what, what Paul's talking about here. First of all, Paul addresses the ongoing enslaving hypocrisy. He talks about the ongoing enslaving hypocrisy that Peter faced. And in doing this, Paul is going to actually kind of give Peter a little formula into how he's operating. Peter, this is how you're living, and it's messed up, it's broken, it doesn't work, it doesn't save, it's off of the gospel. This is what you're doing. You started hearing the law. God was wrecking you up, up and down. God said, love your neighbor as yourself, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and Peter's like, I'm not doing that, I fall short of the glory of God, and so he turned to the gospel, praise God. But then all of a sudden, now that he figures out justification, now he feels like God has handed Christianity back to him, and all of a sudden Peter gets pretty self-focused and performance-based, and now he turns back to the law as a way of keeping salvation. So he has moved from this idea of like law and then gospel, and then he turns back to the law in continuation of his Christian life. Okay? Maybe if I can kind of express it this way. In Peter's heart were these kind of motions. Peter went from this, I have to do, I have to do, I have to do, I have to do. Then he heard of Jesus, and he heard a message of, it is finished, it is done, it is done, it is done. And now burdened by all the things that God gives to us in terms of sanctification, it's almost as if Peter hears the same thing he heard at the beginning, and he hears all these expectations, and now all of a sudden he's back into this category of do, do, do. Here's all these things I have to do, and that's the operation of his heart. You guys hear that? You guys see that? Okay. This is what he's pointing out in verse 17. 
The Judaizers were trying to smuggle works back into freedom of justification in Christ. So he gives this little formula. He gives this little hypothetical. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, all right, let's take, let's, let's pretend that we're going to go the faith route, faith alone. We're going to go faith alone here, okay? In our efforts to be justified with Christ, let's pretend that we do that, but in the middle of it, we're found to be sinners, okay? Again, because the Judaizers were asking circumcision to be a part of the law, which, again, the law is going to always ask way more of you. It's not just about circumcision. It's also about who you eat with and your dietary restrictions. We're going to be justified by faith, but now we smuggle works back into justification, and now we start to realize, oh, man, I'm really not doing enough. Even as a Christian, I'm not doing enough. All of a sudden, we're found to be sinners. And here's this hypothetical question does that make Christ a servant of sin? In other words, does that make sin the top dog? Does that make sin the master here? Does that, make, does that mean sin gets to say what goes on? It's a little confusing, I know. But basically what he's saying is trying to be justified with Christ plus law-keeping, which would naturally point out sin, does this equal this idea of our own sinfulness being greater than Christ? In other words... We cannot get sneak attacked by our own, in our own justification by our works. That's what, really what he's trying to say. We can't get sneak attacked by our misdeeds uh, with, in our justification. Our justification is settled in Christ. And just because you sin, even in, in your justified state, even though you're found to be sinners, it doesn't uproot your justification. You don't start to lose justification based on performance. Because if that were to happen, then it would make Christ subservient to the reality of your sin. It would make the truth about your sin greater than the truth about your Savior. You would be able to get sneak attacked by your sin. Not secure in Christ. And Paul's saying, that's not, that's not how it works. Christ is not under your sin. Christ doesn't serve the power of sin. He's not underneath it. That's the whole point. He triumphs over it. Christ is the one who brought you freedom from your sin. That's one of the things that Christ has freed you from, the power of sin. Christ doesn't serve sin. Really, the realities of this relationship is that sin and the law help serve the message of the gospel. This is what the, God, God gave the law for. God gave the law to increase the trespass, to bring an awareness to our sinfulness so that the message of his gospel could actually have the triumphant power, be the most victorious thing, be the ruling word. Paul's point is that if salvation is even in 1% up to you, if salvation is, yes, be justified, but also you have to keep a perfection level here or else, then my friends will never make it. That's not how God set it up. Christ's word in the gospel is the final word and the final answer. This is why Paul says in verse 18, he, he tore down what he had originally built up. Paul gave up a lawful kind of living in order to trust Christ by faith. Now they want to go back to law. 
Paul did this. Paul rejected the reality of the law to get to the gospel. Now they want to push him back into a kind of lawfulness, a law, gospel, law, reality. Friends, Paul's saying, if I rebuild what I tore down, then I'm just going to prove myself to be the kind of sinner I know I am. If I go back to that way of living, if I go back to the old way of law, none of us are going to get to a point where we're actually doing it. We're just going to prove ourselves to be this kind of transgressor. This is not going to work. In other words, the law is saying, if it's up to me, I would never pull it off. But the gospel is saying this reality that sin and the law actually serve the message of Christ. An awareness of our own sinfulness, an awareness of what the law of God actually is doing in our hearts serves the message of God's grace. Paul will eventually, in his uh, theological uh, argument to the Romans, he would eventually come to this conclusion that anything that's not of faith is sin. And he's pointing out this different kind of mechanism, okay? this different kind of operation in our heart. There's a message of do, 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 do. This is kind of like the operation of our heart that seeks to live out the law. Okay, It starts in me and it works itself out. This is a lawfulness, a lawful living. There's a different operation entirely. There's an operation of faith where there's something outside of me that's given and I receive it with open hands. Okay, There's what I achieve. That's law, what I achieve. And then there's what I receive. That's faith. There's two different ways of living. And the Galatians were going, law? They realized their futility in that. Then they were like, oh, here's Jesus. Grace by faith. And now they were turning back to law as a way of living, a way of actually expressing that. My friends, that is not the way God intends for us to live. So Paul argues in Romans 14 that anything that's not of faith is sin. In other words, if you go back in any way to this, what can I do to achieve? What can I do to produce? What can I do to try to get righteousness from God by what I do? That's sin. Anything not of faith is sin. And later on in Galatians, Galatians 3.12, he's going to have this understanding pressed into our hearts. Anything not of faith is sin, Romans 14. But then he says, the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. The law is conditioned on what you do. The law doesn't receive. The law always seeks to achieve, push you back on yourself. This is why it's so important, as I talked about last week, we understand this distinction between God's law, what he's trying to speak to us by giving us his law. He's not trying you to advance you by your own boot strength kind of power, pull you, pull you up by your own, by your own uh, bootstraps. He's not, he's not helping you do that, right? This isn't this kind of like uh, white-knuckled Christianity. How serious are you about Jesus? The point is, the law helps us understand none of us are as serious enough as we should have been or should be, or should in the future be. None of us are doing it, which is why we need an operation of faith to receive God's gifts. And Paul's saying, once you are in this posture, don't go back. Don't go back. Live in the freedom of faith. 
Law, gospel, law was how they were trying to live. Paul points to a new way. He points to a new way. Where there is no going back to the law. It's just the reality of the gospel. And you stay. There's you hear God's law and his expectation. You realize you're not doing it. You receive his grace 100% to 0%. Fully unconditional. Fully his work, not your work. And then you don't ever move. You don't ever get up from that place. You don't ever go back to ought. You don't ever go back to this motion of now you have to or else. You don't smuggle works back into your justification as if somehow Christ served your sin. That Christ was underneath or subservient or weak in comparison to the realities of your sin. My friend, may it never be. And he gives us then this objective understanding of the gospel. And guys, I want to make clear, and this is, I, I, I told you before, we're going to start to build on this understanding of law-gospel distinction. Last week we talked about the law, that it accuses, that it does the work of accusation, does the work of condemnation in our hearts. It places only demands on you, demands that you cannot keep. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, That's the demand of the law. But then we're going to, tonight we're going to talk about the gospel. I want to make something really clear that's probably really challenging. Okay, I'm going to explain it. I'm going to let it hit you for a little bit. Okay, The law is full expectation and condemnation. The gospel is sheer, 100% pure gift. And here's what I mean by that. The law, excuse me, the gospel makes no demands on you. The gospel makes no demands on you. Now hear me. The gospel has a million and more implications. The implications of the realities of God's free grace are as infinite as the years that God has in front of us. But there are no demands. And here's what I mean by that. Because we often, it's a hard pill for us to swallow. We're like, okay, Jesus died, so now I have to... No, my friends. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died and rose again for you as a gift to be received by pure faith. If there were ever a demand placed on you, it would put you back in this law category. It would put salvation back into your hands. And my friends, that's not it. God loves you too much to not save you completely. The gospel has a million implications of how you could live. Maybe of how, as a person who's been radically changed by the gospel, maybe you could say how you ought to live. Sure, fine. But it's not an or else kind of demand. There's a big difference. Big difference. The things that we're going to learn, there's a lot of commands that Paul gives in the back half of Galatians. Okay, Those are implications that flow from the realities of Jesus' 100% understanding of his gospel. Ways that are, are meant for you to express your freedom. Really good and helpful ways to express your freedom. But those in no way, if you fail to do them, those in no way upset your justification or upset the realities of what Christ objectively has done for you. And the 
performing of those things don't earn you any more justification than what Christ has provided for you already. How do I know? Look what he says in verse 19. This is an objective understanding fixed in a person 2,000 years ago that you weren't there for. He says in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Okay? The law killed me. The law did its work. The law killed my old man. The old man that wanted to self-justify, that thought there was enough stuff to do that I could get to God, the law came in and put a, just a knife right through that heart. Killed the old man. Stopped him dead in his tracks. Why? So that I might live to God. Now, some of us, because we're good Christians, we think that means, oh, we don't live for man anymore. We don't follow man's rules. Now we follow God's rules. No, no, that's not what he's saying. And in fact, I don't even prefer that, that translation. I, I really don't even like that translation. Like, we, we died to the law so that now we can actually live for God, right? As if there's still more to do. No, actually, here's what I think he's saying. Through the doing of the law, I died to the doing of the law so that through faith in Christ, I might live with God in faith in Christ. How do I know he's talking about faith and not works here? Because he goes on in verse 20 and really the rest of the next two chapters to explain what a life of faith really looks like on the ground. And he roots faith in the objective work of Jesus. Verse 20, I have been crucified along with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ now lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because it's he who loved me. It's he who gave himself for me. It's not I gave myself for him. It's not I love him. It's he loved me. And I live by faith in what he's done. That's what he's saying. And this is an objective union that we're talking about. This is an actual spiritual reality that Paul is talking about here. That's rooted in a historical thing that happened 2,000 years ago with a real man and a real blood on a real cross in a real Jerusalem. We spiritually believe that those physical realities are applied to us in a way that actually is transformative and freeing in our hearts. A kind of freedom away from God's expectations of demand. I have been crucified with Christ. Let me try to explain this here a little bit. I have been crucified with Christ. Here's what happened. I died in Christ. In Christ I died. The, the law was clearly expressed on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. My sin was placed on Jesus. In other words, my sin was kind of written on a public screen and public display of what my sin truly deserved. We all get fearful like those preachers who are like, could you imagine if God put all of your sins on a big screen? And He did put your sins on a big screen. He, he did. And then he wrote a Bible about it. It happened in Jesus, right? Where your sin was publicly portrayed as crucified. You want to know where your sin is? Look at the cross. You want to know how God feels about your sin? Look at the cross. But you'll find something great there. He wasn't just merely publicly displaying your sin to shame you. He was shaming his son so that we would never bear the shame of our sin. He placed all of our shame on him. Do you see that? Our, our sin, how God feels about our sin, is publicly portrayed on Christ. And in that moment, in that moment, because of what Christ did, he absorbed the wrath of God, justice was satisfied, all of God's anger against my sin was appeased at G, by Jesus at that moment. There I find, find this death to the law. All of God's expectations, all of his anger against my failures were poured out there, 
We see God's justice against my sin actually satisfied in him. And I died. But now Christ is in me. Christ gets my sin, but now I get the perfect record and life and spirit of Jesus within me. So how does that affect my daily live? Well, now, now I actually live. I live. And this life I live in the flesh, in my flesh, okay, Jesus lived a life with his flesh, paid, paid for my sins on his flesh. Now the life I live on my flesh, I don't go back to the law. I don't go try to pay for things that I did. It's already been paid for. So now in my flesh, I get this free life. And so I live by faith. I live in receiving the gift that he has given me. I live by faith in the Son of God. He loved me. He gave himself for me. Do you, do you, do you see that? He's like, he roots, he roots how our, our freedom in an actual objective thing that happened in history that is spiritually understood in a union by faith. It's almost impossible to explain what that means. But the reality is Jesus paid for my sin. Now I get his free life, and that's received by a simple faith and trusting what he has done. My friends, that's beautiful. Now I don't have to smuggle works back in because of an objective thing that happened to me 2,000 years ago. That's, that's why I don't go back to the law. That's why verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. I don't set the grace of God aside. I don't cancel grace, right? So good at canceling things. Grace is scary, right? Well, grace means you can do whatever you want to do. I don't cancel that message. I stay right there. In fact, what I cancel, actually has been canceled for me, is the realities of God's law that's been paid. I cancel that. I stick with grace. I stick with grace. I do not nullify the grace of God. Why? Because if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And my friends, he didn't die for no purpose. He died to take all of my sin upon himself so that in my flesh, I get to live by faith for free. I get to be free. This is why we talk about faith in this idea, we talk about faith in a Latin phrase called extra nos or extra nos, this idea that we trust in something outside of ourselves. The law wants to push you back in on yourselves and ask questions like, well, how are you doing? Are you doing enough? Faith is extra nos. It's outside of myself fixed in Christ. And Paul objectively roots his faith in the finished work of Jesus. And he says, because of that, I don't go back to the law. I live by faith. I don't cancel grace and go back to the law. If that were the case, Christ died for no reason. I stick with faith. Hypocritical and enslaving religion wants you to call it quits on grace and get back to a life of due. Religion, your flesh, wants you to actually tamper, tamper down grace. Calm it down. Take it down a notch. Because there's stuff you have to do or else. But freeing and life-giving grace invites you to call it quits on the law and live free in the dependency of Christ's finished work for you. Pick difference. The law demands progress, but the gospel provides promise. The law demands religiosity, and the gospel provides rest. 
The law demands devotion. Gospel provides delight. The law demands sacrifice. Gospel provides substitution. The law demands particular fruit. Gospel provides pardon and forgiveness. The law says, fake it till you make it. The gospel says, righteousness is free. Just take it. My friends, this is the difference between a life of law, and again, I want to make it clear that for a lot of us, that means law, gospel, law. That's usually our motion, right? None of us are ever going to say we don't need Jesus. That's going to be like 99% and 1%. Jesus got me this far. Thank you, Jesus. Now I got it from here. We go back to the law. Here's all these things I have to do. The cross of Christ and his empty tomb invites you to turn away from the law. Hear it. You have to hear it. You have to listen to it. It's true. It's right. It's good. It diagnoses you. It keeps you from buying into your own press. It points out the need that you have, so you have to listen to it. But my friend, it sets you up to hear about God's sufficient grace. And so because of this, we do not set aside in any way the realities of God's grace and smuggle works back in. We simply live in the delight of the gospel. Now, because of this, are there many implications? Oh, my friend, there's a gazillion implications. Much to be discovered. Want to know? Want to get ahead? Sure, go ahead and read on. But my friends, because of the finished work of Christ, there's nothing that you have to do today to earn God's acceptance. He loves you, whatever condition you feel like you're in right now. Because the reality is, you've been united to Christ. He sees you in a different way. He sees that you've been crucified along with him. He sees Christ living in you. That's what he sees. He doesn't see what you and I see according to the law. He sees what he has done in accordance with the gospel. So to help you not smuggle works back in, I'm just going to ask that you remember that. Here's your application for the sermon. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Or as Jesus said here, this do in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to understand the realities of your grace. Father, these are... you
是我。